Hey there, InstructureCast fam! Get ready to jump into all things education with us. With a passion for teaching and learning as our compass, we'll embark on a journey filled with engaging conversations, insightful interviews, and a celebration of all the amazing things you bring to our community. Whether you're a seasoned teacher or a fresh-faced administrator, we're here to ignite that spark of inspiration and keep your enthusiasm soaring. So hit that subscribe button, come hang out with us on social, in a totally chill way, we promise, and spread the ed love with your entire crew. Together, we'll create a symphony of knowledge, sharing our experiences and learning from one another. And make sure to check out the Instructure community as it awaits you with open arms, brimming with more incredible content, valuable advice, and a network of like-minded individuals. Join the adventure and let's groove, learn, and celebrate education like never before, right here on InstructureCast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of our exciting Instructure Cast. I'm one of your hosts, Melissa Lobel. And I'm your other host, Ryan Lufkin. We are so excited to be here today with a wonderful set of guests. Our first guest is Martin Bean. And I personally have had the opportunity to work with Martin really closely around much of the focus of this conversation today, which is trends and the future of higher education. So let me just start with a little little background on on um, Martin. He's one of our close friends at Instructure, and then I will turn it over to Martin to share a little bit about himself as well. But for context, and the reason why we're so excited to have Martin here with us today, is he's currently a professor at the University of New South Wales in Australia. But more than that, Martin Bean is also the CEO of the Bean Center, an organization of collaborators and visionaries in the education and technology worlds that are designing an educational future for the world. And this is where we've done much of our work with Martin over the last couple of years. He also has been in, in education for quite a long time. So if I, if it's okay, Martin, share a little more about you and your background and, and how you came to this world and even founded the Bean Center. Yeah, thank you, Melissa and Ryan. It's just wonderful to be with you. And thanks for the invitation. Last time we were all together was in InstructureCon in Colorado. So it's it's great to be back with you again. You know, Melissa, I'm really proud of the fact I'm my, my teenage girls tease me mercilessly about being a baby boomer. I was born in 1964, but I'm one of the lucky ones. My undergrad was actually in adult education and I've had a red thread through my entire career at the intersection of education and technology. And it's been such a fascinating journey from the literally the very first personal computer being put on the desktop all the way through to where we are now, where we have these emergent technologies that, you know, from my perspective, creates probably the most exciting time in my career, but also for all of us as leaders in the space, undoubtedly the most turbulent chapter of my career as well as we all seek to understand (laughs) implement navigate but always putting the student at the center um, of those challenges or opportunities has been the way that I've approached it perhaps for the listeners today I'm a a very rare college president because I'm actually bilingual I spent the first half of my career in the private sector with wonderful technology companies like Novell and and Microsoft where my last tour of duty was running global education products for Microsoft out of Seattle. Um, But then I jumped and I became president of the UK's largest university. Uh, And then after 30 years away from my hometown here in Melbourne, Australia, 
I got to come back and run RMIT, an, an institution of 90,000 students spread across Australia, Singapore, Vietnam, China, and, and a few other places in the world. So I've got that sort of ability to see the world both through an ed tech lens, but also um, as an academic leader and now um, as an academic myself. So just a little bit more about me to give context to the way I might answer the questions, Melissa. We're so lucky to actually get to talk to you. I love that we're able to share, you know, this conversation with our audience because I think every time we walk away, we all walk away a little bit smarter. And so uh, I I look forward to that. So as we jump into the questions, um, you're, like you said, in a pretty unique position to be able to give some insight. This is, I think, the most transformative time in education, you know, especially the last five years, um, that pace of change has really accelerated if we have to look into our crystal balls for the, the you know the next five, ten, twenty years, what are kind of the the top topics, those trends that are going to impact institutions? I think we we talk a lot about um, some of them, but I think there's others that maybe we're we're not uh, we're not focused on yet. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so look, there's there's so much going on. Clearly, I believe Ryan, you're at Educause right now, and as with every conference that's taken place over the last twelve months the implications of generative AI on what we do and how we do it. Uh, I think sucking uh, all the um, oxygen um, out of the sucking room, all yeah. the oxygen. Absolutely. Where, where I'm sort of, um, I, I think that's really important. And a lot of people are talking about that, but, but what I thought we could have some fun talking about today would really be the implications of the new world of work on educators. So, you know, for decades yeah. now, we've been talking about lifelong learning. But, um, you know, that the pandemic was an accelerant that forevermore has changed the world of work and in many ways has changed the skills landscape and the need for individuals to think of knowledge as a currency and therefore to keep that currency relevant and up to date. It's linked directly to the rise of alternative credentials and the need for people to sort of create that 360 degree view of themselves with evidence throughout their entire working life. So I thought that would be a fun thing to talk about today. But the other thing that I thought would be great to acknowledge is what it's like to be an educational leader in these turbulent times, Ryan and Melissa, because it's not easy. It's not easy for any leader. But I think when you run mission-led organizations, where at the core of your being is to do the right thing for your students, your staff, and your communities, leading in turbulent times can be even more challenging. So um, I've, I've got, as you both know, a book coming out on that in about three weeks. And I thought I might be able to just pluck a little few, a few gems out of the book to Love share it. with the listeners today as <laughs> well. Please Ryan. do. It, it, it's interesting because we, we've, we've seen a real shift. You know, we, I, I did a little work um, with the Stanford Longevity Project last year. Uh, and we were talking about the fact that we're going to be living longer. And part of that is this kind of lifelong learning journey, as opposed to you know, I'm going to go to school for 12 or 16 or 20 years, right? To, to we're going to learn throughout our, our life cycle. We need to embrace that lifelong learning journey. What are your thoughts on that? And, and how is that impacting, you know, institutions across the globe? Yeah, you know, I, I work with a lot of universities and colleges around the world. And we are appropriately so. We, we seem to be disproportionately focused on 18 to 24-year-olds. Even though many of us serve very large populations of working adults or non-traditional learners, 
we still, when we approach the business of the day or the challenges of the day, seem to walk into the room, Ryan, with a with sort of an 18 to 24-year-old mindset. And so what I've been doing yep. is spending a lot of time with educational leaders, both because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the economically pragmatic thing to do, to start opening our minds up to an addressable market of 16 to 75-year-olds. Because if we actually step back and say, no, we are here to serve 16 to 75-year-olds, um, it, it changes the way we think about what we do, how we do it, the personas of who we serve, but it also opens up a significantly greater number of students that we can serve, but also communities that we enrich, both from an access perspective as well as a student enrollment perspective, particularly in economically tough times. So I think you're dead on, Ryan. I think that really is the challenge. And, and I often talk about it, um, you know, we're sometimes trapped by the tyranny of conventional wisdom inside yeah. um, higher education. It's the way we've always done it. So therefore, we'll do it that way. And we're somewhat trapped in supply side thinking. So a lot of the work of the Bean Center now is to sort of be a provocateur to come in and sort of say, no, imagine if we rethought why we exist and who we're there to serve, how much more exciting that could be in a world that demands lifelong learners, Ryan. If I can share, um, I teach in a program that addresses that alternative, that extended uh, student or that extended lifelong learner. So I teach in a program focused on instructional design and really preparing instructional designers to build uh, quality learning experiences and learning journeys in uh, in corporate spaces, but also in both K-12 and higher education. Anyway, I share that because just the other day, there's we have a program that's, it's a certificate program, it's five courses. And we've all, all of us as instructors have been teaching in these, our courses for a long time now, many years now. And we had never really come together and had a conversation about what does this overall program look like? Not only what are we doing in our individual courses, to directly align to that future of work that you mentioned, uh, Martin. But more than that, how are we creating this cohesion? And I wish I wish I could have recorded that conversation because it's one of the first ones that I've experienced. And I've taught for a long time in a variety of settings where we were talking directly about skills alignment, directly about what is it today, not when we maybe have been doing some of this work, but what is it today and more importantly into the future that our learners need to get out of this program and why? And we ended up reshaping courses. We're talking about swapping a course out, but it's that dialogue and thinking about that practice that's really needed as we look at that future of work that you talk about. So I can see you having these conversations with institutions looking to make these kinds of changes. Do you have any advice or where do you start with them in these conversations as they come to you through the Bean Center or as you're out there working with institutions you've worked with for a long time? Yeah, boy, we could spend all day on this, Melissa, but um, that the disruption continuum that sort of walks left to right from the need to have properly defined uh, skills um, with digital signatures um, that are developed, written and published by people that know exactly how to do that and define the skills we're looking for, them being enshrined inside skills libraries and taxonomies, those underpinning our programs and our um, credentials, 
um, them being knitted together in logical pathways that are personalized for the individual and then deposited in digital wallets that the individual, if they choose to do so, can express to the world of work, can be discovered by the world of work, verified by the world of work, and unlock talent no matter where that talent is. In a nutshell, Melissa, that is the way that I see the future. So those skills alignment conversations that you are referencing are happening all over the world, not just at a an institution level or program level, but increasingly at a government level. Um, you know, the Australian government a few weeks ago announced that they're going to be investing nearly $10 million in building a digital wallet for every Australian citizen, Melissa, where we will be able to deposit our skills, our competencies, our experiences to be discovered by anybody that we choose to share that with. So I think you're dead on. And I've got a few other trends that I'll touch on as well, Melissa, but I'll pause there just in case you or Ryan wanted to to react to my disruption continuum. I love that idea that, you know, breaking away from that traditional model and looking at, you know, 16 to 75, because data shows 40% of students that start a four-year degree don't graduate, right? How do we create on-ramps for them? We're staying at jobs not as long, right? I think the average tenure now is something between three and five years, as opposed to, you know, our parents who work for the same company for 30 years. So that need for reskilling and upskilling, just the pace of change driving new jobs all the time. So I love that approach. I think it's fundamental to us evolving, right? And the continuum you described, like you like you emphasize, it's not just about the institution and what's the institution driving in that learning experience, but it's the community partnerships. It's the government yes. um, getting involved in those conversations and, and, and shaping this. And it's industry, right? You can't build a taxonomy, a skills taxonomy without informed understanding of what it is that that learner needs to be able to demonstrate when they step into that job that they're preparing for. And you also can't build it without folks thinking about the transferability of that, either within organizations, across uh, institutions, or even just more largely as, you know, we do move around, like like Ryan described, from role to role, job to job, experience to experience. So I, I think it's dead on. The other part I like about what you shared um, is I think it's a good, it's a, a very simple, I don't want to say simple, but it's a very sort of organized formula for thinking about each part of that continuum as, you know, institutions or as governments or as other people listening to this are looking to step in and think about how to change that world of work and the alignment of what we're doing in education. But all that said, I'm curious, what are some of these other trends that that, uh, you're seeing that we can dig into? Yeah. And um, just quickly before we leave that one, there was a report put out by the World Economic Forum in May this year, Melissa. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called Putting Skills First, a Framework for Action. And uh, when I picked it up and, and started reading it, first of all, I felt incredibly validated because they were saying much of what we've just been talking about. But they had two core enablers and they were really speaking to governments and, and leaders in this report. They're two enablers. The first was embracing a skills first culture, policies and mindset. And I think the mindset one there is really interesting. And then the second enabler was adopting a common skills language. So you can see this showing up now um, throughout the world, and they then do a wonderful job of then taking the world apart in terms of looking at where 
nations are in terms of their skills journey. But it's clearly a trend we cannot ignore. Another one that I'm tracking very closely is this shift then um, towards skills-based hiring by employers. In the Harvard mm-hmm. Business Review, I'll give you a quick uh, quote. In evaluating job applicants, employers are suspending the use of degree completion as a proxy and instead now favour hiring on the basis of demonstrated skills and competencies. And that's a bit scary. It's a bit scary for those of us that have spent our whole lives in formal accredited learning because the idea that the degree could not be seen as the ticket to getting the job interview or getting the job and instead employers are going to go looking for specific skills, often which are taught inside those programs or courses or certificates. But I think it's a shot across the bow for us. I, I really, I really think that if we don't pay attention to that, if we don't think about being able to give our graduates the language to use, the evidence, the credentials, the digital verification down to a skill level, then you have to really ask, are we doing our job properly? And of course, um, a few interesting stats, uh, Ryan and Melissa, you know, 37% of the top 20 skills requested for the average US job has changed since 2016. So nearly 40% since 2016. One in five skills requested for the average US job is an entirely new requirement in that occupation. And this research was done before Gen AI really kicked off. And 76% of jobs in the United States changed more from 2019 to 21 than in the previous three-year period. So so not only are we seeing employers shift the way they're hiring, we're seeing this incredible, just incredible acceleration of skills atrophy, particularly in what some people call hard or technical skills, which means that doubling down on enduring human capabilities for all of our students is really important. So in a report that came out earlier this year from LinkedIn, uh, it's their 2023 workplace learning report. In the top 10, lo and behold, as it's been for the last few years, you'll find communication, leadership, teamwork, customer service. So the other implication uh, that I think we need to dial into is what I've often thought about as sort of that that T-shaped graduate. How do we make sure that every graduate comes out with those enduring human capabilities evidenced by their institution in addition to one, two, or three deep domains um, of more technical or crunchier skills? Because I think that's going to be the perfect graduate of the future for the, the labor market. And so I'll pause then for us to kick that around, but then I do want to come back and talk a bit about micro-credentials as well. Yeah. How do we measure you know, the, the skill mastery? What is skill mastery and how do we break down those skills within a course, really? Yeah, and thinking about that skill mastery as well, um, and the statistic you talked about, how, how rapidly those skills are changing, especially some of those hard skills, the, the needs of the future aren't going to look the same as the needs now. The first place my mind went is higher education in particular, but education as a whole tends to be very slow to act. 
We want to get it right. We want to be perfect, methodical, very thoughtful about the work that we do. And that, like, I have a lot of concern around, can education move fast enough in the way it's constructed now in order to address that? Or or does higher education need to rethink itself a bit as well? How it even just does its own processing to develop the 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 content, the curriculum, and the experiences around those skills that are constantly changing. I don't know if you've run into that, Martin, at all. Yeah, I haven't. It you know, it, it it's one of those things that sort of keeps you awake at night as an educational leader. Is are we are our operating models so rigid that they prevent us from being able to move at the pace of our communities, our economies? our learners, because if you look at history, history doesn't judge the incumbent's ability to survive rapid change very well. The the late, great Professor Clay Christensen from Harvard, in all of his work around disruptive innovation, you know, time and time again, gave examples of the fact that the new entrance nearly always wins. And the new entrant nearly always wins because they're not saddled with all of those well-honed, robust, um, high-quality ways of working that have been built up over decades, they come in around the incumbent with something good enough, more flexible at the right price point that that satisfies the need of the day. And I want to make sure, because of how respected our education institutions are in our community, that we don't allow that to happen to us. I think the challenge is back on us to rethink the way that we do things so that we can remain relevant for 16 to 75 year olds, as well as supporting the traditional programs and awards and qualifications that still are so incredibly important, um, often as rites of passage for our citizens. Yeah. One of those innovative approaches that we've talked about, and it's kind of been bounced around, uh, is competency-based education, right? CBE. And Melissa and I have both given presentations, I think, in the last year around bringing the competency-based education conversation and the credentials conversations together. So we make sure that there's rigor behind those credentials, right? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Maybe CBE is not the answer, but we've got to get to a point where uh, those credentials are trusted enough by potential employers. They they trust that there's the rigor behind the mastery of those skills. Uh, and we're still kind of shaping what that looks like, right? Yeah, and I think it's an awesome question. It'd be great to have another podcast completely dedicated to authentic assessment, actually, Ryan, <laughs> because in my yeah. mind, it's not so much competency-based, which is really important, but it is about authentic assessment. And the reason why I like yeah. authentic assessment and that whole uh, body of research around authentic assessment is it doesn't start with one size fits all. It actually looks at what is the most appropriate way to assess an individual given the goal of the individual and the goal of the, the program or what's being taught, Ryan. And, and, and in all my work, I've discovered that there are several different reasons why institutions, um, deliver micro credentials. And I'll, I'll quickly just go through them at a headline level because they, it helps answer your, your question, Ryan. So the, the first reason I found is that to help improve the graduate outcomes of their students, enrich the body of knowledge that they've studied to actually help them get their graduate outcome they're looking to get. The second is widening participation. And you touched on that, Ryan. It's how do we create gentler, 
on-ramps and off-ramps for students, particularly those that normally don't participate in formal education, to move in and out of our institutions through their life. The third, which has been a big one over the last few years, is to create a new income stream for institutions Mm -hmm. from adjacent markets, from B2B, from transnational education, from lifelong learners. The fourth is actually to supplement programs to build those enduring human skills that we talked about before, actually supplement what institutions are doing with micro-credentials written to the transcript in those human capabilities. Often they're doing it for staff professional development. And the final one that I'll just quickly mention is because their governments are asking them to do it. They're drafting and releasing specific policies to get them to react in more in more flexible ways. So if you sort of say they're the reasons why institutions are launching micro-credentials, Ryan, you've really got to have then the right assessment to match the objective of why they're doing it. So in some cases, you'll absolutely want that to be a high stakes type of assessment where you minimize the chance of plagiarism or cheating or collaboration. But in other cases, you may want the assessment to be a a piece of personal reflection that actually gets published alongside the credential Mm -hmm. that allows people consuming the credential to read my reflections and make their own mind up as to whether um, I have appropriately mastered the, the topic. So I think the conversation that needs to be had is a conversation of how do we strategically define why we're doing the micro-credential, who we're serving, what the outcome is, what the institution is warranting that the micro-credential stands for, and make sure that's all written into the JSON and into the landing page of the micro-credentials so that, as the English would say, it does what it says on the tin, Ryan. Because I think ultimately that's our goal. It's not to prescribe any particular type of assessment, but it's to be completely upfront and honest about what was taught and how it was assessed. To really build that trust, right? That, yeah. and, and Melissa and I were in Manila uh, earlier this year, and the Philippines have uh, exactly what you're talking about, a government mandate for more credentials programs to get more learners into uh, high, highly technical jobs uh, more quickly. And that they're really looking at credentials as the pathway for that. Having outcomes coming from those assessments that are demonstrable by the learner as well are going to be really important. So, you know, I think about uh, outputs that coming out of a micro-credential, you can then share so that not only can you see that criteria baked into that credential itself, but you're actually seeing examples of how you met that criteria so that you can demonstrate that to the employer. So we have to take it all the way through to that place as well to create true value or true currency behind those micro-credentials. You're absolutely right, which is why the digital badging is so important. And everybody gets too fixated on the image file of a micro-credential, Melissa. Actually, the magic (laughs) of of a digital badge is not the image file. It's all of the data that's written into the image file. Yeah, that metadata that, that, that yeah. goes along with it, right? Yeah. It's so true. I often tell, I, I, I happen to have a, a badge associated with an activity that my my students do in my course. 
But I often have conversations with, with faculty in particular, and even institutions where they're like, well, we'll just badge each course. That's how we're going to get into badging. Here's our course and here's a badge. It's like, well, that is not the same. Learning in a traditional academic course is not the same as developing um, key skills and being able to demonstrate those key skills. Now they can happen in the same place and certain, you can even assess in similar ways, but those are two different outputs. And it's, it's often not as simple as just badging a course or badging a program necessarily. I totally agree. And, you know, perhaps for the listeners that are worried about, you know, if they build supplemental micro credentials, you know, will their students want to take them? I'll just give a really quick example, if I can, from when I was president at RMIT. Over, a, We decided that we wanted to launch micro-credentials to supplement our programs for all of our undergraduates if they wanted to take them uh, in areas of enduring human capabilities, along with some specialist technical skills. So we did data literacy, emotionally intelli- emotional intelligence, cultural differences and similarities, et cetera. And you know what? Um, over a three-year period, we had 250,000 cred course enrollments by 60,000 students and 3,000 staff, and none wow. of them carried credit. So all of wow. those tens of thousands of people were hungry to get the learning, but also the credential because they knew that combined with their program of study was going to differentiate them in their communities and the world of work. And so, you know, if it's done well, my experience is that it is just such a game changer for an institution and their ability to serve their students, staff and communities. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, I fully agree. I just think about my own political science and history undergraduate degree and how much better suited for the world of work I would have been had I taken in parallel uh, a data analytics micro-credential or certificate, or I would have, you know, taken even some of the more technical skills like cybersecurity or digital literacy. That would have just made that degree come to life and be applicable in so many more Mm -hmm. settings. But but even then, I you know I did a certificate a, a couple of years ago with E Cornell and in data driven marketing, right? Just to polish my skills so I could learn a little bit more about about analyzing data within the marketing perspective. Those great for adult learners. There's so many options available right now, um, and I think it's interesting because right now the the value tends to be associated with the issuer, right, more so than a defined skill taxonomy. But I do feel like we're moving to that more standardized approach. I agree. I think the days of thinking that that low resolution signal of where we studied and quite an unhelpful label of what we've studied is just the world of yesterday. The world of tomorrow is that those things are still important, but if we're not able to provide the evidence of the skills taught and if we're not equipping our graduates with the language to use to describe them, then we're increasingly not doing our job as as hard as it is for me to say that. I think we totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, that is just, it's almost a mic drop moment (laughs) as we think about (laughs) what we're trying to share around trends with, uh, with our audience. 
Anything else you can think of at the moment that we should all be looking to as we're looking at the future of education? I have to say too, Martin, I love the title of your book, Toolkit for Turbulence. Might be like, it's like a manual for, you know, how do we, how do we continue to deal with change? Because that's really what we've seen is the only constant moving forward, right? Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. And maybe if I can just share just a few things from the book with the, the listeners, A, cause I'm a very proud author, but B, I actually think there's some great lessons in there that, that can help us right now. So as I touched on at the beginning of our podcast, education's being disrupted at sort of an unbelievable rate. And that's a challenge for all of us that, that lead. And, and in the book, we sort of talk about a pathway from disruption to adaptation to advantage. So all of the leaders that we interviewed for the book, they figured out a way to take the disruption, adapt and turn it to their advantage. And there were really three steps that we talk about and we might quickly go through each of them and I'll give you a chance to reflect on it. But the first step is sort of, it's about us. It's about the leaders and us having to recalibrate our mindsets, you know, sort of, and and we've touched on it a bit, but moving from a defensive mindset and, and moving much more to an adaptive mindset, not trying to protect what we've got, but almost adapting to the world and the change in the world. And, and so we talk about the need to let go, sort of just, just sort of let go of where we were and accept the external, externality of change. We talk about dialing up the learning for us and all of our people. You know, you, uh, generative AI is a classic example of that. It's changing on a yeah. daily and weekly basis. So if we don't dial up the learning, if we stand still for a moment, we'll be blind to the implications, not just for our learning and teaching, but in every element of our institution. And then it's, of course, about us realizing what are those things that keep us held in a defensive mindset, recognizing those behaviors that are very normal human behaviors, recognizing those triggers and understanding our our mechanisms that we can use to break out from defensive and really adapt, really go for advantage. So that's sort of the first step we talk about. Any thoughts on that? I love it. I mean, it's funny because I think we've seen a micro version of that around AI. I know we're not deep diving on AI, but, you know, November 30th of last year, my birthday, uh, I'm going to continue to mention that. I think I plug every time I mention the JetGBT launch on this podcast, I'm going to mention that it was my birthday of last year. But I, but I think it's so interesting that initial knee jerk reaction of this is a cheating tool, ban it. Over the last almost year, we've really seen it follow the exact pattern you lay out here, where we move from that defensive mindset to a much more, okay, it's here. How do we, and we, we've seen it largely the whole industry, you know, the headlines changed pretty aggressively over this arc. So it's, we've seen that little microcosm around AI already. Melissa, any thoughts for you? You know, I just think um, that the focus on advantage is just so critical in, a, in an increasingly competitive world in education, I mean, the reality as educators, we're competing with others that we never competed with for, for learners' time and learners' energy. And so thinking about how we use the, the type of change that we embrace to our advantage only helps us bring out more opportunities and only helps us as educators be more prescriptive around how we drive innovation and education in such a way that education can continue to be relevant well into the future. 
Yeah, I, I agree with both of your observations. Um, the second step we talk about in the book is just their teams. So, and you can think about that as the leadership team in an institution or a program design team, but we sort of talk about the need for three core processes to happen all the time. Aligning or getting on the same page, collaborating, figure out ways that we need to work together to be effective and that all teams are built and nurtured. They don't happen. So what are we doing to really collaborate effectively in the, in this turbulent world? And how are we getting the truth into the room? How are we bringing the voices from the edges, our stakeholders, our students, our staff, our communities? How are we getting that real time data into the room? Um, as and when we need it, going back to something you said before, Melissa, not striving for perfect information, bring the 80% good enough into the room. And, and so in the book, yeah. we talk about how you can develop your team to align, collaborate and learn and just evolve that virtuous circle really quickly. Because as the world changes around you, how you were aligned six months ago or 12 months ago or how you were collaborating six months to 12 months ago could have changed substantially and the external world could have been disrupted. So getting that into the room and again, going back to something we talked about before, that's where the new entrance has an advantage over us because they're not saddled with sort of cycles of development that straddle years, which we often are. They're running that alignment, collaboration and learning much faster than we are. The emphasis for me on that is, is that learning piece. I often challenge institutions, hundred, you know, educators, we're focused on helping others learn and, and understand themselves as learners. We need to be doing that ourselves every day in our practice. And if we aren't and going through that cycle of building the team and collaborating with that team and learning from that and feeding it back in, how can we create depth? to what we're teaching and learning and uh, teaching our learners unless we're, we're very aware of that and, and modeling it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the collaboration piece because I think sometimes there's a natural tendency to box out the people who are detractors who aren't aligned and in reality, pulling them into the process is the best way to make them uh, advocates and, and align with, with the overall goals. Yeah, it's so true. And we spoke to a lot of the leaders and we were talking to them about, what lessons they learned in leading through the pandemic, Ryan. One of them that they really loved was the fact that they were bringing people into the room that normally wouldn't have been part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And they realized those perspectives, how invaluable they were in their decision-making. And what's worrying me a bit as we're sort of in pandemic recovery is we've started to push those people back out of the rooms again. So I go back to the the normal, the the old normal. Maybe not. Yeah. So when we talk about learn, we're really talking about how do you have the right people and the right data in the room to arrive yeah. at the best, the best decisions. And maybe just to, to wrap up on the, on the, the wisdom from the book a bit that the third step was really about making that shift from being a manager to really being a coach. Now, uh, what the world is demanding is that we as leaders really are much more there for our people. We're much more values driven. We're authentic. We're upfront. And guess what? We don't try to be perfect. We strip the veneer off because everybody saw us at our most vulnerable and they loved it. 
And so one of the superpowers for leaders now is to just bring your authentic self and be a coach rather than a manager. And to do that, it's really about changing the conversation that you have with your people around a conversation about what have you achieved that you're proud of? How have you developed yourself and enriched yourself? What are you enjoying in the job? And how can I give you more of that enjoyment? And who are you partnering with? And how can I help you be a better partner to your colleagues, to industry, to your your communities? And, And in the book, we talk about if you change your conversations with your people to ADEP conversations around achievement, development, enjoyment, and partnering, you'll be astounded how your people will rally around that. So that's maybe the last bit of wisdom on Toolkit for Turbulence. But um, for those of you that do decide to grab it and read it, I hope you I hope you enjoy it. I have to ask a question on that last piece. As I'm hearing that, and even the the second the second uh, step that you shared, that stuff takes time. Having the right meaningful meetings, bringing the right people together. And I think we're in a, in a world today where people are always looking for things, shortcuts, the fastest way to get places and feel time constraint. So I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you have a tip for how you manage your own time personally? Because I think there's a lot of listeners out there that are looking for those pieces. Like I want to do these things. I want to promote this kind of change, but I have a list of things I got to get done that are due tomorrow. How do I? Do you have have a a favorite strategy for, you know, time management? I do. And I'm a maniacal time manager, Melissa. I always have been because I believe in Parkinson's law. I think it is that work will fill the time allocated to it. And I have different priorities in my life. So my first tip is I said, I start with what are my life priorities for this year and how much of my time am I prepared to let each of those priorities consume and what is my stack ranking of those priorities that then so for the priority which is our work then that gives us our time envelope and once we've got our time envelope and i actually when i say maniacal i lay it out the whole year right and i always have even when i was running very large universities the first things that would go in would be the school holidays they'd be blocked off my kids And my family were my priority. Taking care of my own mental health was important. So putting reflection days in, that came next. But then that begs then prioritization. And so the other thing that you've got to be prepared to do then is be very clear about what you want to achieve. What are the most important things you want to achieve? Start every day looking at that. Focus on those first. Get those done. Ideally, have a good, rich conversation with your manager where you're both on the same page and start there and focus on those things first and only move to your B and C priorities if time permits. And I think if you get into that mindset and you're willing to have that daily discipline, you'd be amazed how much more healthy you'll feel, achieving you'll feel, and you'll actually win the respect of your people, because instead of emailing at 10 at night, they will only ever hear from you when they need to hear from you at 10 at night. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I just love that feedback. It's amazing. 
I know. And Ryan and I are quite close, especially as we've been putting this podcast together. And I think there's pieces. I know Ryan's thinking, oh, there's pieces. I hope you listen to that. Oh, yes. And I think oh, yes. this goes both ways of how are we managing both of us have our notes time. We're taking on this. Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we're running out of time, but I do want to say what, what else I'm looking forward. I've already pre-ordered the book. I'm looking forward to it. What else as, as we wrap up, what, what other, uh, you know, recommendations would you give as we look towards the future? Uh, you know, we're, we're approaching the end of the year. It's almost that reflective time of the year again. But as we look for to the next decade, what what advice do you have for our universities? Yeah, and I do love reflection. I really love it, Ryan. So I do enjoy getting to the end of a year because it's the summer here in Australia. And we, we use it as our reflection time because mm-hmm. the sun's out. We have, It's typically when we take our vacation. So don't squander reflection because it's really important. And, and as, as I thought about this podcast, there were really just four extra things I wanted to quickly just share with your listeners that are going to be on my mind over the coming weeks as we move into our summer, Ryan. The first is about adaptability and innovation and really thinking about embracing adaptability as a core principle. You know, really being prepared to pivot quickly as we've talked about in response to changing circumstances, whether it's technology or demographics or sadly global events. But it's all about how do we get our heads into embracing adaptability as a core principle. The second is digital transformation. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's aware. But the need to invest in robust online and hybrid learning capabilities to line up against the new world of work and around lifelong learning and other things that we've talked about to really deliver not mediocre education experiences, but wonderful education experiences in digital formats is not a luxury anymore. It might have been back in the 90s when I first got going with it, but now it's just a necessity. The third is something that I'd like to think we do every day, but sadly, I often don't observe it. And that's prioritizing stu- student success and well-being, putting the student at the middle of every challenge and opportunity. And you'll note I've added the word words well-being to success there, mm-hmm. right? Increasingly, we have to wake up not just thinking about academic success, but that our people, our staff, our students they're well and being cared for. And the last one is just, uh, and I think, oh boy, looking back on this year, it's just, it, it's going to perhaps be my number one point of reflection. And that is just embracing diversity and inclusion. You know, how do we yeah. let everybody just feel comfortable bringing their genuine self to school, to work, to life? to community. We just need to be a bit kinder to each other and a bit more inclusive of each other. And and so those are my those are my four reflection points for the holidays, Ryan. I love it. I literally have nothing else to add. That is a mic drop moment. I love it. Yeah. And that focus particularly on equity and inclusion. I know that's something that Ryan and I strive for in these conversations. We try to bring our whole and honest self to the table. Um, but you know, everything we do in education, I think needs to ensure that there is an underpinning of equity and inclusion 
or else we're not going to be able to achieve the big goals and leverage the innovation and the transformation that's available to us without that. So such a a perfect place to end this part of our conversation. We thank you for being um, uh, helping us predict the future a bit and being very practical about how to manage where we see the future coming at us and the work that we can do in real time today. So thanks so much yeah. for your time, Martin. We so appreciate it. I, every, t- every time we have a conversation with you, Martin, I feel like I leave substantially smarter than I walked into it. So thank you so much. We appreciate it. Oh, look, thank you for your kind words and what a pleasure. I enjoyed every every minute. So uh, take care, everybody. Uh, and uh, it's been a great to be with you today. And now we travel from Australia with Martin Bean to Louisiana and our other distinguished guest. I have the honor of welcoming Dr. Jim Henderson, president of the University of Louisiana system. Dr. Henderson was actually on a panel that I hosted at InstructureCon this year, and the conversation was so engaging uh, and incredible that we were I couldn't wait to get him back on the podcast, and so we're excited to have him here. Uh, in addition to bringing world-class higher education to the students, employers, and communities of Louisiana, Jim has been instrumental in creating a framework for the Louisiana system, uh, which has ultimately produced the most educated generation in Louisiana's history, Compete Louisiana, a program designed to assist uh, 653,000 Louisianians with some college credit, but no degree. Uh, but we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I really want to, you know, take this opportunity to, to say thank you for for jumping on the, the structure cast with us, Jim. We're so excited to have you here. Uh, in addition to that intro, kind of what uh, do you want to share about the, the efforts you're doing in Louisiana? Well, I'm, 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 so honored to be on the, the program with you and, and look forward to this conversation. You know, the, the University of Louisiana system comprises nine distinct universities, each with its own history and culture and traditions. But we we leverage that distinctiveness uh, towards some collective outcomes. And it is a, it's a joy to work with about 9000 faculty and staff and, you know, nine university presidents to serve and over 90,000 students. It's almost a full time job. But we feel like we're really making a difference in a state that has historically had an uh, economy based in agriculture and water and now is moving into the knowledge economy and uh, and needs to educate our citizens. And we, we think we're a pivotal player in that. But delighted to be with you. We talk a lot about the emerging trends in education. Uh, we talked a lot on the panel at Instructure Economy. We kind of went down this path. But um, I like to say we are we are living in the most transformative time. Time in the history of education. And so it's such an opportunity for Louisiana, but it's almost like, where do you start, right? With generative AI and credentials and this evolution in, in learning technology, uh, where do you start? What do you, what, what's your, what's your focus if you can have a focus? Well, so we, we've been talking about it, couching it in, in the, that, that broad phrase, the, the, the future of work. And it's a, it's, it's a phrase. It's kind of an umbrella term that captures all of the, the, uh, the staggering advance of technology, both in, in robotics and automation, and certainly uh, generative AI is 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 the newest. It's, well, it's not really new, but we've seen such exponential advances there. Uh, it's fundamentally changing the nature of work, and that's a conversation we're having in Louisiana. Historically, behind me, outside the window, which we're on a podcast, you can't necessarily see it, but is a Exxon Mobil refinery. And to my west is the Mississippi River. And those two entities have defined the Louisiana economy for more than a century. And yet the work that occurs on that river and the work that occurs in that refinery behind me have have fundamentally changed. And it's because we've gotten safer, because we've added automation, because we've added technology. And it requires a completely different skill set. And so just having a strong back and a great work ethic and some sort of hard skills is 
not sufficient to succeed today, let alone in 2030 and what comes beyond. So we've got to develop programming that's accessible, that leads to measurable skill attainment, but also brings in those core competencies that undergird all of these hard skills. And that's a little bit harder conversation to articulate sometimes, especially to adults who are, have that precious commodity of time that is so precious. And so we're, we're engaged in that conversation today. I love that future of work focus. Um, yeah. And one thing that we're seeing from institutions is in order to do that, building deeper partnerships with industry and business, especially in your local communities. And I know that's work that you've done very, very well. How have you approached that? What are you doing? How are you thinking about shaping these new opportunities for the learners that help them drive, you know, these skills and be more ready for the future of work right alongside the local businesses and uh, industries that are right there that you talked about seeing outside your window? Well, you know, it's it starts with establishing a foundation of trust, right? Because we're, we're not in the same business and businesses and industry is used to people coming with great solutions to problems that they don't have. And that's uh that's a that's a difficult place to be. And so we have conversations saying, okay, what are your your short-term needs? But then what do you see in the future? Because when I talk about future work, talking things that are going to happen 10 years from now, and a, a corporation or a business is trying to say, okay, but I'm trying to get through the next fiscal quarter, and I don't have enough staff, trained staff, to get me through that fiscal quarter. You have some some disconnect there, right? It's a dichotomy. And so we talked to them about, okay, what are the ways that we can quickly get someone up to speed to help you today, but continue to invest in that person so that they're developing these harder to develop skills, these skills that take a little bit longer uh, so they can contribute to you in, in perpetuity. And you know what? I've been, it's been wonderful to see businesses slowly come around to get behind that argument. And one, I just got off of a phone call with some folks from a major healthcare provider in Louisiana that are doing a global healthy state committee. It's taken that long range view that has a very broad net that they've cast, brought lots of policymakers and practitioners together. And we're having these conversations about not just how to advance their business, but how to advance the state in which they they, they reside. And I think that's a great way to approach the conversation. I, I couldn't agree more. This idea of it's it's not just about advancing the learner's opportunity to step into a career or or grow their careers, but it's about mm-hmm. also that learner's ability to impact their local community, their state, their broader geographic region, even, and even their country. And when we start to think in, in that perspective, a lot of these perhaps trends and maybe even disruptors that people are seeing actually are opportunities for us to create a much more healthy space for future generations. So I really admire that work and that the the way you're looking at that work. Um, how did yeah. you get started? Uh, like you said, you talked about creating these relationships and really working for folks, working with folks. How did you get started as you with with just even your overall um, projects that you're working on in the state? Well, it, it's it's a lot of conversations, right? It's internal conversations. It's bringing uh, faculty to the table. Listen, and this is one of the things about higher education. We've got faculty that are experts in their disciplines. They've got deep connections to those that they serve. They're the ones leading the research uh, on the future. And, and, you know, for instance, we have at Louisiana Tech, one of the nation's most advanced industrial organizational psychology departments. Uh, and yet 
we just completely neglect, neglect them as administrators and we start stumbling around in the dark trying to find our way. It's amazing what happens when you bring faculty together in a room and say, listen, I need you to help me think through this. And then you're able to articulate things in a much uh, a much more effective way to the employer community. Now, the employer community, like I said, it's a foundation of trust. That doesn't happen overnight. And so I've been at this work in Louisiana for a little over 20 years and developing these deep connections to some of our key in- industry sectors. And that's when they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, right? When your language doesn't necessarily match up with the industry jargon, or maybe you're yeah. talking in, in some broad uh, uh, ways about something that's very particular to them. We work very closely with the maritime industry. In fact, uh, we just got authorization to create uh, uh, the new state maritime academy, the Universities of Louisiana Maritime Academy, that uh, is going to serve an industry that, uh, well, just think about this, 24% of the inland waterway transportation that occurs in the United States occurs within the borders of Louisiana. 20 wow. That's how much water drives our economy. And yet we didn't have a maritime academy. That's a pretty easy one to to think through. It's a pretty difficult one to execute. And uh, we're working at the federal level to get some uh, recognition of that, too. But that's one of the ways that industry has a concept to say, you know what, we want to support this. We want to invest in this. We want to buy into it. I think one of the the, the panel that we did at, at StructureCon really was about how do we, as we align more to these skills that employers need, how do we make sure that we don't lose those traditional soft skills? And I, I'm making finger quotes because we're on the podcast, but um, how do we not lose those soft skills, those traditional soft skills? And I think you had a really great take on how those are not so easily separated, right? Yeah. Well, and 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 think about the history of these soft skills, right? And And we took uh, a group of, of 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 black male students that are part of the Reginald Lewis Scholars Program with us to Paris. Uh, they were presenting and, and listening to lectures at the Sorbonne, you know, an institution that has produced 33 Nobel Prize winners and six Fields Medals winners. As we're struggling along the banks of the Seine River, I'm explaining to them how in the 13th century, people would gather on the banks of this river and listen to lectures on math and science and logic and writing, language arts, because they knew that that broad education was the path to social and economic mobility. Well, here we are. I don't want to do the math on a podcast, but it, but at least 700 years later. And this, those foundational skills are still exactly the same. We set about to work on what we call the core competencies model. And the core competencies, we brought faculty together. It took them three years to develop this. It's to identify the competencies that undergird every degree we produce. It doesn't matter if it's in dance theater or if it's in uh, biomedical engineering, you're going to get the, the the skills associated with the discipline, the knowledge and understanding associated with the discipline. But you're also going to get these core competencies, this creative and, and critical problem solving, this effective communications, this ability to this adaptable resilience. And man, we had had a need to be resilient in, in this last couple of years. This cultural competence, the ability to work with people that maybe come from a different belief system or different background and but you've got to work together towards a common goal. And the last one is this self-reflective awareness, this ability to limit, to understand your own cognitive limitations, to know what you don't know and to accept that just because it's it's not your truth. Maybe there's more information that could, that could lead you to a different understanding or a deeper understanding of somebody else's truth. And and we think those five core competencies create learners. And I'm, and I'm so glad, Melissa, you used the term learners earlier. Because we're not just preparing graduates or workers, we're preparing learners. And my favorite philosopher slash longshoreman, Philip Hoffer, once said that, that in times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. 
And that's the that's the saying that has stayed with me and, and I think it powers so much of the way we think. We're preparing learners for a world that doesn't exist today, but one that they'll be prepared for whenever it arrives. I love that quote. And I I love how you picked up on learners. It's something that we're deliberately using because as we're thinking about the relationship between institutions and the learner, it's shaped so differently. That learner is going to come back and forth, hopefully, to your institution or collection of institutions and get different experiences because that world is changing so rapidly. One of the things that I also know that you've done very well and been very um, deliberate about in building these programs is making sure they're accessible and equitable. Talk a little bit about how you've how you've been able to reach in particular students that may or learners that may not have had access to some of these kinds of opportunities and and really helping them get those incredible five competencies that you talk about. Yeah, so you know we uh we when I brought the the presidents together 7 years ago for the first time to develop a strategic framework for our system. I said guys, we've got to come up with some outcomes, some goals that are that are worthy of these institutions, more importantly, worthy of the students that we serve and the taxpayers that fund us. And and one of the goals that we came up with was to create the most educated generation in Louisiana's history. Now, that's pretty audacious. But as we started to dig into that, we realized that that in the aggregate, we have an undereducated populace. But when you dig deeper and you look at populations that come from rural areas and populations that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, populations of color, there's some great disparities in the state of Louisiana. And it requires targeted solutions to address the needs of these populations, being very, very purposeful in our work. And uh, and so we've approached that unabashedly. We have these conversations openly. Uh, we 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 look for champions at our college campus, as I mentioned, the Reginald F. Lewis scholars. So these are uh, two rising sophomore black males from each of our nine institutions. It's identified not necessarily for for academic prowess or, or leadership, but they just have that that je ne sais quoi, that that grit, that it factor. Yeah. And we put them through a curated educational experience for those next three years with internships, mentorships, travel abroad. Uh, they get to work directly with me multiple times a year and just in some conversations, of course, with, with with the great Dr. Claire Norris, who leads that program. But then we see these guys return to their campuses and they become force multipliers. Right. So we've got our third cohort in, so there's 54 right now, but they go back to campuses and they impact, you know, 10 to 20 students themselves. And they're creating their own models on their campuses. And that's the only way that you can do this work at scale is with force multipliers that have uh, uh, that we've invested in that that are that are that are taking this message back and impacting those around them. It's probably the most rewarding um, educational initiative I've ever been a part of. And it's uh, and these guys continue to amaze me every day. I just got chills hearing about all of that. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Yeah, oh, it, it was the room full of that at, at InstructureCon. That's why I wanted to, you know, continue into the blog, the podcast. Um, I'm not at Educause this week, and it's, it's been interesting because AI has dominated the conversation. And as we talk about things like accessibility and bias and equitable access, um, one of the interesting things that a speaker yesterday came up, uh, said was, if you ask AI uh, to generate an image for you of a CEO. It comes back invariably with white male CEOs. And it shows the bias of those large language models, those biases that exist in the data that's training those models, right? So how do we empower people to use AI and adopt this, you know, these emerging technologies while still being cognizant of the the bias, the, the uh, you know, equitable access, all of those challenges? What, what, what are you facing with the University of Louisiana system? Well, first, you know, there's a fear, right? We've got a lot of seasoned yeah. faculty members, right? And and so generative AI is this this newest thing that's come out, and it's 
it's difficult. It's sometimes you want to say, man, this is not part of who we are. I imagine it's what when we shifted from the abac- abacus to the calculator, it was probably some similar <laughs> circumstances. Not only the fatigue, the change fatigue after COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've got that aspect of it, but then go to, to the other end of the spectrum. The current generation of elementary students will never have known a world without generative AI. And what does that look like 10, 15 years from now when they become our students? Right. We've already seen this yeah. with, uh, you know, the current generation of students never uh, would, did not have a, a mobile phone. Right. They don't remember the days when you had to find a payphone on the side of the road in a dime. It, Melissa, that was something we used to do back in the 90s. It, but it, yeah, we had, we had we had pockets in our shoes to carry a dime right. just in case. That's right. It's right? <laughs> so it's 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 this generational impact that is part of this as well. But, you know, I was uh, uh, I was part of a, a computer science standards committee to develop K through 12 computer science standards for the state of Louisiana. And one of the things that, that gave me pause, we we hit this thing called coding is a foreign language, right? That we're going to allow coding to be substituted for a foreign language. Now, let's just forget the point that foreign language is not just about learning words in a different way to communicate. It's, it's so much richer than that done correctly. But then to substitute coding for that. And now with AI, with chat GPT, you can develop the first draft of a code for some of the most complex operations just by telling it to do so. And you can come back yeah. and find that. And I think that's what I think is what smart coders are doing. But so what do you empower them with to use their talents in a value added way in that spare time that's been re- that's been given to them because we've released the menial portions of their work? And this is not unusual. I remember when I got to uh, my first chancellorship. Uh, there was a, a, an assistant that had been there for some time, probably for 30 years, working with the previous chancellor. I walked into his office and there was a computer monitor, CRT monitor, that had a sticky note on it that said, if the screen is black, wiggle the mouse. If the screen stays black, call IT at this number. <laughs> I said, oh, goodness. Well, she comes in and she's got two big desk calendars. And she goes, listen, I keep all track of all your stuff on your desk calendar and I copy it on mine. So I always know where you are. Now, this was 2009, so the iPhone had been out for, man, at least 18 months, right? And I said, you know, I I keep everything on this phone, and I really don't use paper calendars for anything. And so she retired, and we had to find a a new person to come in. And it was, uh, but it was such a a, a stark reminder of how quickly uh, uh, technologies can pass us up. And listen, it passed me up back in the early 90s. If you needed some uh, work in a Unix system, I was your guy. That skill set's not really serving me well today, and it's uh, I've become obsolete myself. Yeah, all of the the old uh, graphic design tools that I knew, I think, no longer exist. So, yeah, I, I'm no good. I'm no good at designing anything for you. Hey, right. Look, when I was in uh, journalism school, I was the editor of the newspaper, and we had a, a sizable budget, and I bought these brand new Mac Quadra 950s that were at least. Two and a half feet tall. They weighed 33 yes, pounds. I remember them. And uh, the the phone and the watch that I'm, I have on right now are probably 250,000 times more powerful in terms of data processing <laughs> than that. Uh, times change quickly, my friend. It's yes, and, and you know it's no longer the the green and pink and and blue uh, you know yeah. laptops that Apple once made. They're much sleeker in design and fancier. Oh. Uh, this week we we launched our uh, state of student success survey. It's, it's a survey we've done for the last four years. It's it's interesting because we started pre COVID. We've been able to watch kind of evolution of um, 
you know, what students perceive as student success, but also what their institutions perceive. One of the one of the data points that we came up with this this time around was that um, uh, only 41 percent of educators feel highly empowered by their institutions. And I think that's one of those challenges, again, as we have more emerging technology and there's more pieces. What do you do to make sure that the educators across your, you know, the entire state really uh, feel empowered, feel supported? Is, is this is there in this kind of fundamental change? You've got to find ways to engage them in the conversation. Right. And I mentioned the core competencies piece, you know, so identified faculty from all nine of our institutions, multiple disciplines and put them in the same room and said, hey, guys, here's the challenge. Solve it. Give us the answers. You know, I didn't 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 use them as just a rubber stamp, something that had already been done. I had some ideas yeah. about where I, I thought it should go. But when you put smart people in the room, they're probably going to take it in that same direction, but fill it with so many layers and flavors that make it truly like a gumbo we have in Louisiana. Right. It's all these things that, that blend together to make it something so much greater than the sum of its parts. So finding ways to engage them in conversation. Uh, we, we have a UL system conference every year where we'll bring about 600 faculty and staff from all nine of our institutions in one place. And it's great to watch as they kind of break up and, and they, they find their affinity groups and they remember the person they saw last year and they were dealing with this problem. And, and hey, I solved this problem. And the more opportunities you, you create for that kind of collaboration, people feel empowered. And then when you recognize their ideas, you know, I was told a long time ago, uh, a guy that worked for Secretary Bell in the first Reagan term, you know, Reagan came in, one of his platforms was to abolish the Federal Department of Education. And so imagine being the person he taps to be the Secretary of Education at the department <laughs> to abolish, right? It's not really the most important thing. But he said yeah. he figured out a, a, a tactic that he used, a strategy he used, that as you accumulate credit, give it away as quickly as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And for us as administrators, we, we get credit for all the great things that happen in our institutions, most of which we have very little to do with directly. So finding those opportunities to recognize those that have been put forth the efforts, the the, the intellectual uh, perspiration, if you will, uh, to develop these ideas and recognize them publicly, recognize them often. It's amazing what that can go. And if you can remunerate them appropriately, that doesn't hurt as, as uh, either. So we try to do that as well. Yeah, one of the things that in some of my, the past work that I've done in institutions We've not only recognized in those kind of settings, but we've also thought about how does that become part of the overall growth or career path for faculty or educators in particular? How do you give them feedback opportunities? How do you help them evaluate themselves and, and understand where are they at in the landscape of their teaching, not just their discipline? And I, much of what you said just reminds me of those kinds of activities as a way to really engage and develop. It's an, it's an opportunity to not only grow your learners, but also to grow all the educators um, at the same time in how they're thinking about their own discipline in their own teaching practice. Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's important and we can and we can take these things for granted. My mother was a librarian and I remember when she had, she already had her doctorate in education, decided to go back to get her MLIS and she had three sons at home and a and a husband and we said, "Mom, you know, you have to get a master's degree to learn how to check out books and stamp due dates and collect fines." And uh so as uh, as our punishment, she made us read her thesis and quizzed us on it. Right? <laughs> and I learned so much more about what the librarian brings to the table and how it's 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 not this administrative stuff that you're used to seeing. It's this ability to understand uh, where to find research, how to evaluate research, how to find multiple sources and bring them together. And when you recognize the nuances of these disciplines that aren't your discipline, you realize that, hey, 
these experts are bringing something more than just a narrow little slice of some information. They're able to bring these much level, higher level cognitive abilities to the table that can help you analyze things in a much deeper way. But it requires a little bit of listening, active listening. It provides giving opp- opportunities for them to weigh in on these things. And it's, uh, it's, it's a remarkably powerful tool when we take time to recognize that. So what's next for Compete Louisiana or for the, you know, the University of Louisiana system? What's the next hill to climb? Yeah, so everything for us is scale, right? So Compete Louisiana, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of degree completion programs that are out there. We were purposeful in not saying complete. It was about compete because that's the outcome. We want people to be able to compete in this uh, 21st century economy. We want the yeah. losing employers to be able to, to be competitive. And we, we really want to empower individuals with their own economic and social self-determination, right? Global citizens that are empowered with their own individual destinies, but still contributing to our collective humanity is one of the ways that I'll talk about it. And so Compete Louisiana is is focused on the 653,000 adults. Uh, we've seen some great stories of graduates that have come back that for whatever reason, they dropped off the path that they were on when they first came to school. One of them was so compelling. She was at, at the bookstore at University of Louisiana Lafayette getting her cap and gown with her 10-year-old daughter. And she put a social media post and she says, you know, the last time I was on this campus, I was going to the registrar's office to drop out because I just found out I was pregnant with this young girl. And I didn't think that I could make it through school with all the pressures of school and being a single mother. So she dropped out and she said, I swore I would never come back until I I could be proud of it. Well, I hate the angst that she was under, but what a great celebratory moment that is to return to that campus 10 years later to get your cap and gown with that 10 year old daughter. And the, the sense of pride that emanated from that social media post was enough to keep me going for the next 25 years. I promise you. I mean, that's what we're all in this for, right? That that story is such a moving story, but it's such a great example of what, why we get up every day, why Mm -hmm. we all want to work together to drive towards this incredible future where we can all be the best citizens, the best family members, the best friends, the best, um, you know, engaged humans in the world around us. Yeah, I, I love how you said it, engaged humans, because- you know, for us, it is that bifurcated approach. It is uh, about preparing individuals, right? Because we want individuals to be empowered. And, and you know, we're a, a nation that's built on individual liberty, right? And, and, and allowing people to carve their own path, make their own way. It's limitless what you can do. But ensuring that we're empowering them to understand that we're, that we're educating them in a way that they understand that there's a community basis to this, right? That you're a member of a civic society. And there's an obligation that comes with that because these these freedoms that we enjoy only work in in a true civil society, and and so that's an it's coming upon us to develop the whole human to be able to contribute effectively to that. And I love the way that you talked about you know engaged humans. That's that's what we're trying to produce. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jim, we could go on talking for hours and hours. This is this is the stuff Melissa and I love. So you could, oh, we yeah. could literally never end this conversation, but we have to unfortunately. Thank you again so much for joining us. Your leadership in education, your approach to the, the, the betterment of society through education really is is inspiring and, and we appreciate your time. Yeah, Listen, thank I, you. Pure yeah. joy. This is pure joy. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for your partnership, uh, which you've done to enhance our operations and, and our, our mission of learning is 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 phenomenal. And so we 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 appreciate every opportunity we have to engage with you. Thanks, Jim. You're amazing.
And with that, we want to thank everybody for listening and tuning in, right, Ryan? And keep tuning in. We've got great, exciting more topics to come. Make sure you're uh, sharing this with friends as well. These are great opportunities for to learn, pick up best practices, and also just be inspired by the incredible work of those educators around us. Yeah, and if there's content or uh, topics you want us to touch on, let us know. But we want to keep carrying on these conversations about uh, all of the, the trends facing higher education and education in general. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of InstructureCast. We're grateful to have you as part of our vibrant community of teachers, educators, administrators, and education enthusiasts. Don't forget to find us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and share the ed love with your fellow educators. Together, we'll keep igniting that spark of inspiration, celebrating the art of teaching, and embracing the heart and soul of learning. And remember, the Instructure community is the heartbeat of our adventure, where more amazing content, valuable advice, and lively discussions await you with like-minded individuals who share your passion for education. As we wrap up this episode, we hope you're inspired to keep grooving, learning, and making a difference in the lives of your students and peers. We're so excited to hear about your new adventures. Make sure to take us with you.